If you will please take your Bibles, open them to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, and if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word as we continue our walk through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, and we will begin reading again, <clears throat> excuse me, at verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day, and we pray that we would be mindful of you as we hear your word. We pray that you would turn our hearts unto you, change us and transform us by your grace and for your glory. And God, I pray that every one of us would learn to walk in diligence with a hope that is established in your truth and not on anything else. God, help us to understand that everybody hopes, but only true hope has any value whatsoever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, biblical hope is a fruit. It's a fruit that comes when we live in truth and seek the truth of God with all the strength and passion that God gives us. But in the same way that the world is filled with fruits that are good for us and with fruits that are very bad for us, so also are we capable of mistaking human wisdom, strength, and passion for God's wisdom, strength, and passion. And when this happens, the results are disastrous. We've been considering diligence for the last month or so, considering it as a concept, considering it as knowledge, considering it as wisdom, which is knowledge applied. But this morning I want to think with you about a diligence that is false because its premise and its aim is false. And this false diligence aims at producing false hope. And where it succeeds... It destroys all the trust in its power. So the first thing we need to understand is that false hopes destroy true hope. When we cling to false hopes, we lose interest in God and in his true hope. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 78, please. Psalm 78. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Psalm 78. Psalm 78, starting at verse 1, says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and his strength, and his wonderful works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob. And appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, 
that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare to them, declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So what the psalmist is referring to is the dire and dark history of Israel, that every time God would bless them, they would become more enamored with the blessings than with the God who gave them. And this is a very common theme. This is something that happens to people still. It happens to us now. It happens every day. It's something that if we're going to follow after Christ, we have to be aware of and be on our guard against. Because this this pursuit of false hopes, it has so many manifestations. There are those who will tell you that they are hopeful people. And they hope in all sorts of things. They hope in mankind. And they hope in mankind's ability to straighten the world out. There are some people who actually still hope in politicians. I can't understand it, but they do. There are people who hope in science, however you define science. There are people who hope in money. There are people who hope in power. There are people who hope in self. And there are even people who hope in religion. Now, of all of them, this is probably the most dangerous Because hoping in religion says, I can figure out a way to do something that will earn favor with God. I can do good works. I can live in a way that's pleasing so that God then will be forced, sure, forced, to give me good things and to let me into heaven. We read in this morning's catechism reading, what is the sum of the moral law? It is the Ten Commandments. What does God require of us? He requires obedience to his law. It's a very simple concept. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Easy. And love your neighbor as yourself. Simple. Nothing could be easier to understand. (laughs) Nothing could be harder to actually do. But still people persist in putting their hopes in their abilities to obey the law. They put their hopes in their ability to do things in a manner that will somehow force God to give them this righteousness, that will force God to give them eternal life, that will force God to give them some promise that everything they are and everything they do, that they will somehow retain some good from it. But the problem is, is that the scripture is very clear that we cannot in any way please God through the works of the law. And it goes further than that when we think about it in the context of hope. Look with me at Galatians chapter 5. So Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, tells us this. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, he's not speaking about a medical procedure here. It is a medical procedure, but that's not the point of it. The point of it is circumcision in that day was a return to the Old Testament law. It was a return to 
the, the adherence to the things of the Levitical law, it was an abandonment of grace. And so what he says is, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. So what's the heart of this? The heart of this is that when we set our hope in Christ, we do not have our hopes set on anything else. But when we set our hopes on other things, we do not have our hopes set on Christ. And this is an important thing for us to consider because you have to fight this every single day. There is never a shortage of ideologies. There is never a shortage of intentions. There is never a shortage of people who are doing their very best to tell you, to teach you, to convince you, to force you to accept the idea that you are not going to be saved by God's work, but that you're going to be saved by yours. They're coming to your door. They're knocking. They're wearing nice little name tags. They're very polite to you. They're telling you that God only honors those who do the things that they tell them to do. They're building grand buildings. They're doing wonderful works. They're they're making sure that everybody sees their righteousness because their righteousness is the only hope that they have. But what Paul tells us in Galatians that it really is an either-or sort of circumstance. Either you rest your hope fully in Christ or you rest your hope fully in your own righteousness. You pick. Whichever one you're going to trust in, that's the one you've tied yourself to. You can't have both. You cannot have both works righteousness and a righteousness derived from faith. It doesn't happen. So this false hope is not a small thing, and it destroys us. And this pattern is deeply driven into our natures. It forces us to press after what we fixed our hopes on. Abandoning what you have already cast your hopes on is very difficult to do. Turning away from something that you have really fixed yourself to is is near impossible for most people. And and you don't have to look far to see it displayed in the culture right now. Uh, How many people are still rabidly defending decisions that were made a couple of years ago in spite of the fact that all of the evidence shows that the decisions were wrong? But they're still determined. You'll still see signs. Follow the science. Well, let's. You'll still see signs about how important it is to do the things that they told us to do without any consideration for what we actually ought to do. But rather than following their science even now, and it's their data that's just destroying them, they're still determined to do what they're determined to do. We see it over and over and over again, time after time, with circumstance after circumstance. When we fix our hearts on something... We're deeply ingrained and and made in such a way that that attachment is nearly impossible for us to break on our own. Once you set yourself to it, you can't undo it. Which is one reason why it's so important 
that we choose carefully and wisely the people that we're going to associate with, the friends that we're going to have, the companions for our lives. Because if you set yourself to be a companion of fools, the scripture says you're going to follow in their footsteps. And it's going to be very hard for you to break loose from that. How many of you right now, it would, it would not take you long at all to, to think about somebody from your past who you may have had a lot in common with when you were younger before God saved you that still in some way or another has some sort of attachment or hook in you. And every once in a while, out of a clear blue sky, they'll call and you'll feel that pressure. It's a very dangerous thing. And so for all of us, we must be careful to choose wisely in the relationships that we make, in the, in the connections that we allow. But nowhere should it be more important to us that we choose wisely in what we intend and purposefully put our hope. Because your hopes, they, they are what drives your life. Hope is not just wishful thinking. It's, it's a certain reality. It, it's something that you cling to even beyond the evidence of what you can see with your eyes. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. I'm sorry, Hebrews 11. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11 says this, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen are not made of things which are visible. So if, if it is true that faith is the substance of things hoped for, and since the scripture affirms it, we're going we're gonna to hold on to that. But if faith is the substance of things hoped for, do you recognize the deep and powerful importance of the things that you hope for? Because what you have your faith set in is the final substance of the composite of everything that you're hoping in. So if you're hoping in works and power and wisdom and fame and all the good things that you can gain from this life, what is your faith really in? It's in those things, right? If, if, you're, if you're hoping that, that all of those things are somehow going to, to bring you closer to God, then your faith is rooted in those things and those hopes will ultimately betray you. This is not a small topic. This is not something that we can just allow to pass over us without really engaging with the question. What is it that you hope in? Are you hoping in true things? Or are you hoping in false things? Because here's the truth of it. Whatever it is that you're actually hoping in, it's forming you. It's shaping you. It is the very substance of your life. It is the very substance of your faith. And false hopes are themselves a false hope. They are themselves an empty thing. They are themselves something without power, and they are themselves something without the ability to do anything. And, and in the end, we have to engage with this reality, and we have to examine the question carefully in, in concerning our lives. Look at Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57 Starting at chapter 1, or starting at verse 1, sorry, chapter 57, um, starting at verse 1, it says this. 
The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, and no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But come here, you sons of sorcerers, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are are not children of transgression offspring of falsehood? Inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the stream, is your portion that they, they are your lot? Even to them you have poured out a drink offering, you have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these things? On a lofty and high mountain you have set up your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice. Also behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance, for you have uncovered yourself to those other than me. You've gone up to them, you've enlarged your bed, you've made a covenant with them. You've loved their bed where you saw their nudity. You went to the king with ointment and increased your perfumes and sent your messengers far off and even descended to Sheol. Pay attention here. You are wearied in the length of your way. Yet you did not say there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand, and therefore you were not grieved. Of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to heart? Is it not because I have held my peace from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, for they will not profit you. There's a terrifying statement from God, by the way. I will declare your works. I will declare your righteousness. I'll give you full credit for everything that you've done. But it's not going to comfort you. It's not going to profit you. It's not going to bring you any good thing. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away, and breath will take them. He who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So we have this, this tension here, this dichotomy between those who put their trust in God and those who put their trust in other things. And there's something stunning in verse 10 when he says, you, you're wearied of your days. You've recognized that your hope doesn't do you any good. The things that you've put your hope in, the things that you've put your trust in, you're, you're tired of it. You recognize that they're not really satisfying, but... You found the life of your hand. In other words, they brought you just enough of the good things that you're okay. And therefore, you don't say, I have no hope. Because you've filled yourself with a false hope. This is the problem with the world at large. This is what you're dealing with when you're facing a people who will look you in the eye and say, why in the world should I trust in your God? I have everything I want. Or I at least have enough of what I want that I believe I can get the rest. Because in the end, God has not come hard against them. God has not struck them. God has not chastised them. God has let them go their way. And as a result, their false hopes have inured them to the danger in which they stand. Their false hopes yield just enough comfort that they don't feel any pressure. In the end, what we as Christians have to be aware of is that this is the problem that we are facing, but we also must be aware of it for our own sakes. 
Because all too often we are being tempted to cast our hope on those things which are not God. All too often we are being tempted to give our life and our attention and our time and our energy and our effort to everything except obedience to the King of Kings. We are being tempted to give ourselves to everything except God. Now, in the end, this this brings us to kind of an important crossroads. What's the difference between those who continue to put their hope in the things that they can see, in the things that they can touch, in the things that they can taste, in the things that they can produce with their own hands, and those who recognize that while those things may be good and blessings in our lives, instead we put our hope in the God who promises to save us? What's the difference? It is the act of God's mercy. Because apart from God's mercy in your life, you would hope in false things as well. This is an ingrained pattern in humanity. This is an ingrained pattern in mankind. We chase after false things. And once we've latched on to something false, getting us to let go of it is very, very difficult. The only thing that will actually bring that to pass is a transformation of the soul brought on by the grace of God. The only thing that's going to make somebody let go of a false hope is God showing them, first of all, that the hope is false, and then showing them by His grace and mercy that hope is good and true in Christ. So, if God does not move in mercy, the only end for everyone is hell. If God does not move in mercy, the only end, even for the best person that you know, is an eternity separated from God in hell. There is no other option. There is no hope apart from Christ Jesus being counted on as Savior. There, There is no hope out there that will bring any good to a person's life except Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if we're wishy washy on that, if we're soft on that, if we're thinking to ourselves, but they're such nice people. And they do so many good things. And and they're so fun to be around. And I really like them a lot. If that's our thinking, then how are they going to hear the message of truth? How are they going to be even exposed to the gospel? Because the scripture asks the question, how will they hear without a preacher? And that doesn't mean me. That means you. Because you are the person who God has brought into their lives. So, We need to consider that hell is a reality that is something that we must get our heads around and engage with as we are considering not only our lives, but the lives of the people that we love. Because where you love somebody, love is only love if what you intend for them is what is actually best. Now, Jesus himself warned that the only thing that is available to somebody who is apart from him is hell. Look at Matthew 25. Now, there's a whole lot of interesting things that people will say about this passage. They'll point out that it seems to be a works-based righteousness and that it makes their point rather than mine. But let's read it, and then I want to 
show you something right at the outset here. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. Now when the Son of Man comes in His glory with all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory, and all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on His left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, there are those who will contend that the only issue being shown here is what they did and didn't do. And on a quick surface reading, that's true enough, but it misses something fundamentally important. Robert, I want to ask you a question. I need your honest answer. You have both sheep and goats, right? Are they the same kind of animal? Are sheep goats? Are goats sheep? No. They are completely different critters. They are a different critter based upon their natures. Not based upon what they do, but upon what they are. So, when we read this passage, let us understand immediately at the outset that Jesus divides the people of the earth on his left hand and his right hand based upon whether they are a sheep or are a goat. It has nothing to do with their works. The works manifest for us to see what a person is. The works help us make a determination to know who is and who isn't, who we need to be sharing Christ with and who we need to be fellowshipping with. But the division occurs before the works. The division is based in their natures itself. Okay? The, the entirety of, of my reason for coming to this passage this morning, though, is the very stark question of what happens to the two groups of people. Is there any option for the goats to go back to remedial education and somehow become sheep? No chance at all. Is there any option whereby the goats are just somehow let loose, so oh, just go your way and go have fun and, and just don't come see me? No. What happens to the goats? They are cast into eternal fire. They are cast into hell. And we need to recognize the truth that whatever somebody wants to think about the reality of their hope, Oh, I, I hope that I do good, but if I don't, then I'll be reincarnated and I'll have a chance to do it better next time. No, you won't. 
The scripture says it's appointed unto man but once to die, and after this the judgment. And this is the judgment that is waiting for us. The division of those who belong to God from those who do not belong to God. And it is a division according to the nature that you are. Here's what you need to know. Goats can become sheep when God makes them so. But it happens before this moment. It happens when God in His mercy gives you a sheep's heart. He takes out that stony goat heart that makes them stubborn critters that you can't keep in. And He gives them a heart of a sheep that wants nothing more than to be wherever the shepherd is. Beloved, in the end, our hearts should belong to him with such passion and purpose that there's no question in anybody's mind that we're a sheep. And I don't mean sheep in any bad sense of the word. I mean just a heart that says, I want to be where my shepherd is. I want to be with the one that I love more than anybody else, and that's my God. I want to fellowship with Him. I want to walk with Him. I want every day that I'm given on this place to be a day in which I draw closer to Him. That is the reason for my existence. That's why I'm here. I am here so that I might learn to love my God. Part of why He's given me the job that He's given me to do, the calling that He's placed on my life, is to maybe help you But I'll be completely honest with you and say that every sermon I preach, I preach to myself. You guys are just listening in on a quiet, private conversation. You're a bunch of eavesdroppers is what you are. The point is, when I preach, God is feeding me. I'm drawing nearer to Him. When when I prepare a sermon and and something happens and church doesn't happen, say weather arises or I get sick or something like that, that sermon is never preached. It dies. I just figure that one was for me alone. The next week I'll probably use the same text because I'm, I'm, I'm preaching sequentially, but it's a whole new sermon. And the things that I was going to say and the sermon I was going to give was not intended for anybody but me. That's God feeding me. That's God speaking to me. You, I pray, derive some benefit from what the Lord gives me. But my reason for existence, every day that I'm here, I'm here to draw nearer to Him. And I can look at the value of a day and I can say, I hit it out of the park or I wasted it, based on whether or not I drew closer to God. If I spend the day whining and complaining about all the terrible things that happened to me or all the terrible circumstances that I have in my life and just whine about me and what I want, is it good or is it a waste? It's a waste. I've not been faithful with what God gave me in that day. This comes down to my hopes. This comes down to what I rest my hope in. If I rest my hope in my God then it's what I want more than anything else. Think back with me through the dark chasms of of ancient days to when you were a small child waiting for Christmas morning. You hoped that what you asked for was going to be there. Oh, you were confident in it. You really expected it. You hoped anyway, because you also knew how bad you were. But that's neither here nor there. 
that hope carried you through the days until it came time to find out. And there was no dissuading you from it. Now, it's a very weak analogy, so don't take it too far. All analogies die at some point, and that one's going to die in about the next two words, so I'm just going to leave it like that. But I want you to understand that the hope that sustains us is something that's out there in front of us. It's something that, that we're longing for, something that we're hungering after, something that is a motivation. And if your hope is in your God, then everything that you do is aimed and anchored towards drawing closer to Him and, and hungering more for Him and desiring Him more and more and more. And when you find your soul being satisfied in some degree by something else, what should that tell you about what your hope really is? It's false. If, if you're able to be sustained by something that's not God, then that should communicate something to you that you need to pay attention to. It should communicate to you that perhaps your hopes are not everything that they ought to be. In the end, those who have their hope placed in anything but Christ will find that judgment awaits them, and the result of that judgment is dire. They will enter into an eternity where hope no longer exists. And where the emptiness of their hopes and dreams that they planted themselves in is displayed to them over and over and over. That's part of the torment of hell, is this absence of hope. Dante's Inferno has a lot wrong with it, but when Dante first approaches hell, he sees the door over the sign. Most of us could quote the last line. Anybody know the, the, the sign over the doorway to hell? Abandon all hope, you who enter here, right? It's worth hearing the stanzas just immediately before it. Through me you pass into the city of woe. Through me you pass into pain, eternal. Through me among the people, lost for I, justice the founder of my fabric moved. So God's justice is the originator of hell. To rear me was the task of power divine, supremest wisdom and primeval love. Before me things created were none, save things eternal. And eternal, I endure. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. It's not a small thing to consider an eternity in hell. And it's not a small thing to recognize that it was God's justice that created it. And that it took God's power to erect the gates. And that the gates are locked from the outside that God himself holds the key. It is not the domain of Satan. It is not the domain of those who have just hated God and decided they're going to have a party without him. It is the place of God's justice and the place of God's wrath. And it is not a small thing, because when all false hope is finally proven empty, one of two things is going to happen. Either somebody is standing in the day of judgment and they are cast into the place where there is no hope. Or, mercifully, God has broken every hope they had and opened their eyes to their need. Look with me now at Ezekiel chapter 37. 
This is a very famous passage, and most of you will be familiar with it. But I want to just show you something pretty remarkable about it. Ezekiel 37. This is the Valley of Dry Bones, the vision that Ezekiel had of the restoration of the house of Israel. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me in the spirit of the Lord, set me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of a valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, like a coward, O Lord God, you know. (laughs) Not going to go out on a limb there. (laughs) He's not going to make a guess. You, You know, God. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you that you shall live. And then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, I looked and the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. No life yet. They looked alive, but they weren't. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. He said to me, son of man, These bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. And then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. At what point does God bring life into the house of Israel? When they realize that they have no hope. This is a very difficult path to navigate faithfully. Because you're going to be called to be a part of somebody's life when they're telling you, I don't have any hope. There's nothing upon which I can rely. There's nobody upon which I can depend. I am utterly without hope. And immediately, your desire is going to be to comfort them and to tell them all the good things that are in their life because you're kind people. And you want to do good things for them. And you want them to feel better. But you need to be very faithful to what the scripture commands. And you need to tell them that they're absolutely right. And that in the things that they have been hoping, there is no hope. And you need to proclaim to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that they understand the difference between the false hopes that have bound them. And the real hope that will save them. Because in the end, the only hope that really matters is the hope that is anchored in the truth of Jesus Christ. 
The only hope that really matters is the truth that says that Jesus came and died as sacrifice for our sin. That he was slain by God for his people. That the wrath of God for our sin was poured out upon Christ and that it pleased the Father to crush him. And that having poured out the fullness of his wrath against sin and satisfying his justice in its entirety, Jesus Christ was received back unto the Father. He was raised from the dead after three days. And he was ascended into the heavens where he sits even now at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will return and gather to himself all of those whose hope is in him. Not whose hope is in him and anything else. Not whose hope is in the things of this world. Not whose hope is in any other process or promise. Those whose hope is in him. When when God brings you into somebody's life, in that point in time when they say to you, I don't have any hope. Do not do the humanly kind thing. Speak the truth. Because that moment, it's a gift. It's a gift because when people look at their lives and they're wearied of their days, but they found their life in their hand and they go, "Eh, okay, it's not everything I wanted, but it's okay. They're not turning to Christ. They're not crying for mercy. They're not seeking the face of the Father. But when all of those things have been stripped away and there's nothing left, they're hungry to hear the truth. Do not waste that moment with tripe. Speak truth. And speak truth into the deep places of their soul. Because in the end, that's the time when God actually opens us. The hope that sustains us is founded in Christ. It's rooted in Christ. It's anchored in Christ. Its entirety is Christ Jesus. This is our hope. This is all we have. This is the one weapon of our warfare. It is the one promise. Because in the end, any hope but God will fail us. Proverbs 10.28 says, The hope of the righteous will be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Proverbs 11.7 says, When a wicked man dies, his expectations perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. But when we put our hopes in Christ... Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9, starting at verse 9. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. 
Even today I declare that I will restore double to you, for I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with the blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. How great its goodness, how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. Are you a prisoner of hope? Isn't everybody, in one form or another, a prisoner of hope? They're captive to what they're putting their hopes in. They're captive to what they're trusting. Are you a prisoner of hope that actually matters? Is your hope steadfastly fixed upon Christ Jesus? Is He the one thing that you know without question you cannot do without? This idea of being a prisoner of hope, it it was compelling to me. It's it's something that caused me to take a step back and reread this passage over and over again. Because the idea of being a prisoner of hope means that God himself wrapped us up and contained us for the moment that he intended to deliver us. Beloved, hear this. So many times we look at the circumstances in our lives as a curse. We look at the things in our lives that are not what we want them to be and we say, oh, if you would just deliver me from this moment. But that is completely the wrong attitude to have. God calls us to look at the moment that he gives us and to say, Lord, you have placed me here for hope. You have placed me here for this time and this place and this circumstance and in it you are drawing me unto yourself. I am a prisoner of hope. That's that's our heart. Wherever and whatever you're facing, I want you to know the truth that says that hope that is anchored and rooted in Christ Jesus will sustain you through it. But where your hope is anchored and rooted in something else, you will find it weak company. You will find it empty. You will find it filled with sorrow and regret. What God calls us to do is to abandon those hopes and instead to lay claim to what is our true hope. To remember that it is the coming of the King who offers us hope. Because in the end, every time that we hope in God, the fullness of everything that we anchor in Him, the fullness of everything that God Himself attaches us to Him with, those promises are guaranteed to succeed. His hope will never fail. Hope that is rooted and anchored in Christ will triumph. It will always be fulfilled. But waiting upon God is required for that. Psalm 130 verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than for those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, 
hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. We wait on the Lord. We trust in him. It says in verse 5, in his word I hope. Now that means the spoken word of God, the things that God has promised, but it also means his word. It also means the thing that he has given to us to communicate to us the promise that he has made. How do you know what God has said to you? Well, he very kindly wrote it down and put it in a nice binding and put it in your hand so that you could read it. He doesn't expect you to to lay down and sleep and have him speak to you in your dreams so that somehow or another... You might wake up and hazily grasp at something and say, I think that's what God said. It used to be that way. But now in these last days, he's given us his final word. In the person of Jesus Christ, who by his spirit led his prophets to write down his truth. He's given us the fullness of his word And he calls us to hope in it. He calls us to trust him because of it. Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners. Be zealous for the fear of the Lord all day long, for surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. One of the things you're going to find to be a difficult thing if you're not fully committed to trusting and hoping in Christ and in Christ alone is you're going to look at people around you who are chasing after the world and receiving the blessings of the world. Their God, little g, no authority, is blessing them with what he has. They're being captive. They're being held captive by those hopes. But they're receiving the blessings of this world because that's all they have. And the scripture tells us, don't let your heart envy that. Don't let your heart look at them and go, ah, Man, how come I don't have all those good things? Because all those good things do is blind you to the truth. Instead, recognize that God has given you something more. Recognize that God has given you a relationship with Him that is larger than anything else you might ever need. And that that relationship with Him will certainly never disappoint and will never fail. Recognize the truth that God is worth the loss of all things. And understand that partaking in good hope and avoiding rotten ones is absolutely essential. So you need to be discerning in what you hope in. Proverbs 24, verses 13 and 14 says, My son, eat honey because it's good. There's good counsel. Eat honey because it's good. And the honeycomb which is sweet to your taste, so shall knowledge of wisdom be to your soul if you found it. There is a prospect, and your hope will not be cut off. So what is the the proverb telling us? It's telling us that as God has reshaped us to love him and to honor him, then the wisdom of his word, the good things that that he loves and the good things that he likes, they become appealing to us. So partake in them because God has given you new tastes. Eat the honey that's good to your taste and recognize... You have to discern between the old honey that you used to like in the flesh and the new honey that is derived from the word and the truth and the hope of Christ Jesus. Beloved, in the end, 
it comes down again to the question of sheep and goats. Why do sheep act the way they act and why do goats act the way they act? Because they are what they are. Why is it that Christians love God and love his word and love his truth? Because they are what they are. Where there is hunger for you, hunger in you for him, it is the gift of God. Feed that. Nurture that. Dwell in that. Let that grow strong. Let that be something that that propels you into his presence. Understand this. There's going to be times where that desire is weak. You're going to dwell in the world and you're going to lose your way and you're going to forget and you're going to become captivated by other things and you're going to feel alone and you're going to feel lost and you're going to feel like, what's going on in my life? And and you might even reach a point where you're feeling hopeless, like there's nothing in the world that has any good value for you. The same thing that I told you about your friends, you need to be honest with yourself about. And you need to speak to your own heart the truth of God's word. And you need to say, Lord, please restore in me the joy of your salvation and help me hunger for you. Help me dwell where you are. Help me come into your presence with passion and with purpose. Let my hope be rooted and anchored in you. And it becomes for you an opportunity for some surgery of the soul, which is your responsibility as a follower of Christ by the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit, by the word of God being faithfully applied. But you must be a participant in the process. God will bring you to the place where you examine your hopes and you ask the question, are these things that I've been anchoring my hope and my life in, are they true hope or are they false hopes? Are they true comforts or are they false comforts? Are they true expectations or are they false expectations? You're going to have to ask yourself some hard questions, and you're going to have to look with earnestness at what you've been spending yourself on. Because in the end, this life is about making you fit for his presence. It's about drawing you closer to him every day, every day, every day, coming closer to the Father, walking more and more into his presence. And so everything that God does boils down to this question of your hope. Where is your expectation? What is it that you're resting yourself upon? These are opportunities for the soul. God is making us fit for him. And one of the tools that he uses to shape us is the hope that he gives us. So be faithful to examine it. Be faithful to look at it. Be faithful to ask the questions. We'll pick it up here next week. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in the midst of this day. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us a people whose hope is truly anchored and rooted in you. We pray, God, that there would never be anything in us that is less than 100% yours. And God, I know that that's impossible apart from you. So please... Make us fully yours in every way. Help us walk in grace. Help us walk in truth. Help us live out the hope that is rooted and anchored in Christ. And let us stay away from hope that is not. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.